Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Whitetail Theories podcast. We are on episode three of the Deer Camp Tour podcast, and we're visiting Florida with Kyle Sheffer. What's going on, Kyle? What's going on, Tony? Not a whole lot, buddy. Not a whole lot. Uh, so Kyle and I met, what was that, like two, three years ago on uh, a little trip that Jimmy and I took down to Florida for ICAST and ended up hooking up with you to do a little fishing. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's probably yeah, two years now. Yeah, that's wild. Time flies. So yeah, it was a good time. It was a really good time. I, I mean, I caught a, a lot of bucket list fish, to say the least. So, I was, I was a very happy camper. All right, I like to hear that. <laughs> so, uh, Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how you grew up hunting, kind of, uh what style of hunting you you have give us a little bit of background um i grew up in uh south florida um and i i honestly didn't really start hunting until i was probably about 14 or 15 my dad didn't really hunt but i had uncles who hunted um my mom's side of the family's from iowa and i always wanted to go and it just never kind of panned out it was hard to get a tag and we didn't have private land so i guess it was kind of just in me to go and one one year I just decided to start giving it a whirl and I just tried my best at it and kept trying and trying. It took a couple of years for me to finally succeed, but uh, I figured it out on public land uh, by myself and just trial and error, just going out there and putting boots on the ground. And that was before Google Earth or anything like that. And eventually have it somewhat figured out. I have it totally figured out, but enough to shoot one or two a year, I guess. So, with kind of your background and how you got into hunting, one of the big things that you had to develop at an early stage was your woodsmanship. And that's something that I've been kind of harping on with the podcast is maybe not necessarily rely on all these uh, tactics and techniques as far as what you're seeing on social media, uh, YouTube, that kind of stuff, but more so develop your actual craft of being able to read deer sign, um, being able to navigate in the woods, that whole deal. Uh, is that the kind of stuff that you learned early on? Yeah, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a boy scout, so I did learn the basics of, you know, just walking through the woods and all that, but I learned a lot from reading magazines and just watching hunting shows what I could, but what I learned out pretty quickly was, uh, the prettiest places on the management areas, or the, that's the public land we have here, they call management areas, aren't always the best place to find deer, like, just because there's a field there and, you watch TV and they shoot big bucks in a field. Well, that's probably not where those public land bucks are going to be because there's a hundred other people that have sat there before or there's too much activity where it's not even worth your time. Right. No, exactly. It's uh, I was just having a conversation the other day about uh, e-scouting and you see all this stuff about getting into pinch points and stuff like that. Well, yeah, animals might filter through there. It's also a like big alert sign for hunters too to go to those so a lot of yep. times they can be hot spots for hunters and maybe the the deer traveling through there it's it's totally nocturnal yeah absolutely i mean especially if it's close to a road or something easy to access that's uh that's a big no-no but a lot of but a lot of us down here for the most part we don't do all that like beast hunting tactics you see people do it just because we have so much food and the woods around here are so thick there's so many different places for them to bed and the only thing that we really have for the most part is hunting on 
you know, funnels or just finding a good rub line or a scrape line and just sitting it. But this whole theory of individually picking out one buck and going into a public land and killing it around here, it's hard to do, especially if you have to go in at night because you have to be create courage. You have to have enough courage to go in there in the morning without <laughs> your flashlight on. And there's a lot of creatures down here. There's gators, there's snakes. And I don't like walking in the woods with at least a red light on, but walking in the dark through a big cypress swamp or something, it's not really something I'll do. Yeah, that's something that I think I I often overlook about Florida hunting is like, yeah, I'm, I mean, dude, I probably would not be going in without like a solid spotlight with gators, uh, pythons, the whole deal down there. I, it, that definitely gets overlooked. That's funny. But uh, I want to kind of rewind here a little bit. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like what the herd dynamics are in Florida and the uniqueness about white-tailed deer in Florida in general, because I think a lot of people don't know this kind of information about Florida. Well, the hardest thing about hunting deer in Florida, in my opinion, is it's really hard to pinpoint a rut. Like, yeah, I mean, you can chase the rut. The great thing about Florida, you can chase the rut from the beginning of bow season, which starts down south, like the end of July, which is July 31st, I think. Wow. And they're full bore chasing, and they're already chasing before season starts. And you can go all the way into the panhandle until February, and deer are chasing in February. Well, where I'm at, they kind of start chasing right now. Actually, just yesterday, driving around checking on the mansion area, we saw a nice cow horn spike, you know, nose to the ground, dogging something, just running around. But the problem is, it's not a rut like the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a specific week. You know, a lot of it depends on how high the water is. And that water is real high because we get a lot of rain in the summertime, it makes the hunting a lot better. Well, this year it's been kind of dry. hasn't been that good because the deer can kind of spread out more and go different places. And it's it's hard to scout months before just because the topography of everything changes. Just because there's a bunch of deer sign there in the spring, well, you go back there in archer season and it could be belly button deep water. Well, deer's not going to walk through there or bed in there when it's belly button deep. Gotcha. So it's, gotcha. it's different. And as far as the rut goes, that is because of uh, basically deer being introduced to Florida, what, in like the 1800s or or whenever that was, and they pulled deer from basically all over the country, even Mexico, and that's why you have a a very unique rut down there? You know, I'm not real sure on that. Um, I don't know if that's just because they're just wacky because of the way I was told that it's all dependent on the water level. I've heard so many different theories. I don't know which one to believe. Gotcha. But some say that, you know, when it rains earlier, like when the water's real high earlier, the deer go into rut sooner. And then when it doesn't rain as much in the early season, they chase later. I mean, I've seen fawns in archer season. I've seen fawns in muzzleloader. I've seen fawns in gun season. It's just, it's all over the place here. It's hard to pinpoint why. And, you know, what dates for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. So uh, one of the big things that I've always been curious about is, like, what are food sources in Florida? Ooh, well, that's the other issue we have. So obviously it's so lush down here. We get a lot of rain, so everything's growing. Our growing season is all year round, essentially. So we've got green briars. We've got deer berries, which are essentially like a wild blueberry. We've got acorns. We've got palmetto berries, which is a big thing right now. Um, I mean, there's 
any new woody browse that comes up and then they, they eat everything. There's a deer can walk down the trail and pretty much just pick his choice of browse anywhere he goes, which makes it difficult. Down south, it's sawgrass roots, like where it's nothing but the glades. They actually pull the sawgrass roots up and they actually eat the roots underneath the sawgrass, which is amazing how well they can adapt to literally any type of environment. Yeah. So would you say on average that like most Floridian deer don't really move a whole lot? Like, so for example, here in PA, you might get a buck on trail camera in one location. And then a week from now, you might get him five miles away. Yeah, no, um, it, it depends. Like the topography, every, each management area is so different, especially I've said with water is a big thing. You know, there's islands out here. There will be a cypress swamp or sloughs that are super deep. I mean, even a giant swamp buggy will get stuck in them, and there'll be islands. Well, the nice thing is if you do find a deer and the water does get high in those islands, those deer tend to stay on those islands. They don't leave. Um, but when it's dry, they kind of stretch out all over the place, and they can run anywhere they want. Gotcha. But so, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say they move as much as they do in PA or Iowa or Illinois or anything like that. So it's very, very water dependent. Oh yeah. When the water's up, the hunting's great because it channels them. And that's when you can kind of figure out where they're bedding. You know, anything that isn't wet or somewhat wet, like anything that's ankle deep when it's wet is usually pretty good. But when it's dry, they can go anywhere they want. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, one of the things that I've also heard of that's pretty unique is not only do you have a a season that starts in July, but you also have some pretty unique seasons down there. So can you kind of talk about some of the, the trials and tribulations that you might run into as a public land hunter in Florida and then how you go about dealing with it as far as hunting pressure, the different seasons, that, that kind of stuff? You're talking about like... Um like buggy season and dog season and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So archery season, I mean, it's different. Each management area, we have one set of rules for, we have zones broken down like anywhere else. Like we have zone A3, zone A4, A2, and each zone has a certain season. Well, in each one of those zones, there's management areas. Well, each one of those management areas has separate rules. So there's a lot like gun season might start, you know, 15 miles away from the management area I'm hunting. And then the one that I, then the one that's 15 miles away, you can run buggies, swamp buggies, half tracks or full tracks, dogs, airboats. Now where the other one, there's none of that allowed. So if you do come down here, you have to uh, check the regulations on each specific management area. And some are quota permits and some do not require quota permits. So you have to figure out which ones, which ones are, which ones you have to apply for, which ones you can just walk in at. So, uh, kind of let's, well, I want to actually take a step forward. One of the things that I was very, very confused about was how the quotas work down there. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit and, and shed some light for people that, uh, are potentially considering Florida? Cause that system seems super, super confusing to me. Sure. So each, uh, each year there's different phases. There's phase one, which is the initial application. That one goes off preference points. So each year you apply, there's an archery, there's a muzzleloader, and a gun. 
So when you apply for the Archie permit, you don't get it. You get one preference point. So they give half of them away to people with the highest preference points. And the second half goes to a random. So if you don't get it the first year, you get that point. You apply for it again next year. And then once you win that, once you win that hunt, all your preference points are raised. You have to start over again. And then you have to keep doing that until you get the hunt that you want. And you can return it. Um, I think it's two weeks before the hunt. And then after first phase, you can apply every weekend, first come, first serve at random. And that doesn't take any preference points away from you if you get it. Gotcha. Now, uh, when it comes to quotas, right? So the way that I understand it is you might apply for uh, a management area and it has a quota. Depending upon the quota that you apply for, you might only have four days of that entire season to hunt that management area, correct? Yep, yep. But the big allure to it is, you know, some of these highly prestigious management areas that everyone wants. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. It's nice because you go in there knowing that if it's 10,000 acres, there's only three people that can hunt it. So you don't have as much hunting pressure, which is nice. But like you said, the problem is if you go in there and you want to kill a specific buck, you have to do it within those three days. And it's hard to do that within three days. you got to get pretty lucky, essentially. That's why I think a lot of uh, the romp and stomp mansion areas, I call them the ones that don't require permits. I, I'm always torn because I live close to both of them. One couple that are quotas and one that is not a quota. And every year I hunt the non-quota WMA for open and archery and I see a ton of deer and then I go into the quota hunts and I'm picky because I want to kill a big one and don't really see a big one as much as you should. Whereas I think if you put your effort into a imaginary you can hunt all year long, you'd be a lot better off in my opinion. And do you think that's because of like the stuff that you described earlier about Florida having such a wacky season and being so water dependent, um, deer not having to necessarily move as much, uh, because there's so much food available to them, um, that whole deal. And then you, you put like lack of pressure on top of it. Um, they may not be, be, they may not move even at all. Like, does that play a big role too? Is, is like hunting pressure to get deer up on their feet to move around? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't like hunting pressure, but one of my favorite mansion areas is the Romp and Stomp. They run swamp buggies and dogs, and they literally take a giant, like probably 10, 12-foot tall with 5-foot, 6-foot tractor tires that are 4-foot wide, and they crush over the palmettos and try and jump the deer out of their beds, and then you have to shut the buggy off and shoot them. I actually like that because in the middle of the day when nothing's going on, or even during dog season when they run dogs, the deer are constantly moving, but a lot of people can't get that past their head that just because a buggy drives by you doesn't mean it's over. It actually can get better, but people have to learn to get past that obstacle. Right. Right. But yeah. I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I So I've seen that in certain locations that I hunt up here where deer basically have everything they need relatively close to their bedding locations. And because of that, you don't see a whole lot of movement outside of nocturnal activity. Yeah, but absolutely. Once, but once rifle season comes around, it's a totally different ball game where you can get them up. Uh, you can get them up moving. They'll be in the in security cover, but at least they're up moving where 
you at least have a chance now, whereas before you never had a chance. Yeah. I actually, I shot a buck uh, Sunday, Sunday evening. I had a guy driving by in a buggy. He was off trail. He wasn't supposed to be because they make you drive on specific trails. And the guy had a crossbow or a cross gun, as you call it. <laughs> and uh, the guy was 60 yards away from me. I was on a canal crossing and the guy stopped 60 yards away from me and just kind of sat there for a little bit and for about two minutes and I realized he didn't see me. I whistled to him and he drove off. And about 10 minutes later, a couple of does came out and cowhorn spike came out behind him and I shot the buck. Where a lot of people would get upset because, oh, my hunt's ruined. A buggy drove by me, blew out all the deer and there's nothing left in here. You scared everything. You can't think like that just because someone walks by you doesn't mean it's over. Sometimes it gets better. Right. Right. Exactly. So I want to rewind again and I want to talk about some of the, uh, the trials and tribulations that you went through as uh, a new hunter in Florida and talk about some of the secrets that you unlock. Cause I know that you have a pretty unique way of hunting and you oftentimes think out of the box. Uh, do you want to kind of dive into that a little bit, Kyle? Sure. Um, like I said, each mansion area, like Florida, the great thing about Florida, it's so diverse. You can hunt many different types of habitats. You know, you can go hunt oak hammocks, you can hunt cypress, you can hunt pine flatwoods, you can hunt palmetto brush, you can hunt myrtle flats, you can hunt sloughs, you can hunt ball, anything you want. That's the great thing about this. So you kind of have to, I think the best way to succeed is to pick one type of habitat that you really know well and learn how to hunt it. I like hunting cypress because I think the deer feel comfortable in there. There's water. In there, there's tons of food, there's shade, there's cover. And if you find like little high spots in, anywhere in there, like little islands, and I mean, it doesn't have to be big. It can literally be, you know, the size of a car or even half the size of a car. And those deer use those pine trees as kind of like beacons or markers. But a lot of times when you find a lone pine tree anywhere in the woods, out in the vast cypress, I think a lot of times those deer use those as markers to navigate through the cypress or bed in them. And that's what I've had a lot of my luck with. And pinches or funnels, even cypress ponds, any type of big pond I can find that just funnels any type of movement down I've always had good luck with. And I don't use any of that scent, scent spray or anything like that. I mean, I might do like a doe and estrus or something and hit it on a couple of trees and walk in. But it's so hot down here. I mean, it's Right now, I'm sitting outside. It's probably 90 degrees. Jeez. There's no way you're going to be scent free. I don't care what you spray on you. It's too hot. Mm. There's no way to be scent free. So you play the wind, and uh, you just pick nice little funnels and changes in habitat or anything like that, even just uh, clumps of cabbage palms that are mixed into a pine flowers. Anything that's just slightly different makes a world of a difference. But you have to kind of train your eye to see that walking through the woods. So those transitions, do they? Do you typically see them, um, like just cruising those transition edges, like that's their travel pattern? Yeah, absolutely. They use the cypress to navigate through the daytime because it's thick, it's a lot of cover, and I think if you can find or two or three different types of habitat come together, like if there's a cypress with a pine, pine island, two or three pine trees in the middle of Cypress. And that Cypress butts up to an oak hammock and then a palmetto flat on top of it. You're, you're in the gold because you obviously got the oak hammock, which has the acorns. You got the palmetto berries, which also has 
the palmetto berries and the green briars and the deer berries and all that. And then they go into the cypress in the daytime. And that's what I've done the best. So it's not so much as here's picking just one type of bed or anything like that. You just want to find an area where there's as many different habitats collided all into one. That way you don't have to figure out what type of food source they want. Because if there's only three different types of habitats in the whole mansion area and you find three of them, those three that all connect right there, well, there's going to be deer in there because there's any type of food source they would eat at that specific management area right there in front of you at that transition line. Mm. The more diversity, the better. Exactly. Yep. Gotcha. Uh, so what would be a good representation of uh, a buck in Florida? Now, I know that's kind of a, a loaded question, but um, give me like a, a general general rule, if you will, or something like that. Like what, what can people expect if they're traveling down to Florida? Depending on where you hunt, you go down south, you shoot a hundred inch deer, you shot 130, 100. That's like shooting, you shoot a hundred inch deer way, way down south. That's like shooting a 160, 170 up in Pennsylvania. That's a big deal. Wow. You start moving north, they start getting bigger and bigger. But for the most part, I mean, if someone shoots a 120, 130 inch deer, everyone around here talks about it. Everyone's seen it. You know, it's like a, it's a big deal. Um, but we did actually just start implementing antler restrictions probably six years ago, I want to say now. And that romp and stomp mansion area I was talking about never used to produce big bucks. And this year, for some reason, I don't know why it's dry. I usually don't kill as big or good as bucks when it's dry because they can kind of hide in that swamp more. That water doesn't push them out. They have killed more big bucks this year than I can ever remember. And I'm seeing huge difference in just the antler restriction and now we also have the uh deer tag system now so before you could shoot as many deer as you wanted mm-hmm. now they change it to um five deer per person but if you shoot a 100 inch buck here you can actually send it into the state and they'll send you a certificate if you get it measured by their biologist you get a order registry buck so it's it's a big deal you shoot a 100 inch deer essentially that's cool so um as well like what what are the what are some of the age classes down there like so a uh, hundred inch deer is that like a five year old deer yeah that's that depending where you're at like I said it's all different like up north it's not it could be a three and a half four year old mm. but I know when they did the um, the deer tag system the average age of a deer shot in Florida was one and a half per yeah. buck which is that's not good. No, PA yeah. used to be like that too. Yeah, and you guys had antler restrictions, and you saw huge, a huge uh, change, right? Yep, yep. We saw a huge, huge change, and we're still seeing it. Uh, that was uh, there was a lot of public push for that, wasn't there? For the for the yeah, ARs down in uh, in Florida. Yeah, there's people against it, like anything else. There's people, there's people against it. There's people for it. Um, you know, you got people that just want to go out there and shoot a deer. It doesn't matter what it is. And I'm not knocking anyone that wants to do that. I mean, if you enjoy shooting deer, I'm fine with that. You know, I mean, I personally would have liked to seen them do it with an age class, but I understand that's harder to do mm-hmm. because you can't, you can't teach people how to, uh, age deer successfully and it makes it difficult. So the next best thing they did was antler restrictions. Yeah. And the antler restriction is 10 inches of main beam or three or more points on one side equaling one inch, the pine length, 
one inch more in length per point. And that's different for each region. So you go north and there's not a, the ant restriction I think is just two on one side instead of the 10 inch main beam. And they did that for the dog hunter. So if someone jumped, you know, a buck, obviously it's hard to tell if he's got three points on him. Sure. And you can shoot him. Yep. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, shoot, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, so uh, let's talk about harvest limits here a little bit because you had mentioned that it's now reduced to five. Yep. And what did it used to be? So before it was whatever each individual management rule said it was. So if you were good, and I mean you were the baddest person around, you could go to each management area and kill it. I think a lot of them were like two deer per management area. So you could essentially go to the, I don't know how many managing areas you have before, 160, 150, 200, 300, I don't know. It's over 100. You have a lot of public land, believe it or not, like a ton of public land. You could go to each one of those and shoot two deer, and you would still be legal. So there's not many, but there's some people that were shooting, you know, 12, 15 deer in a year. Wow. That's hard to do down here, though. It's not easy. Right. You know, it's not open. It's thick, and the rut's not as precise as it is in other places it's difficult so i want to talk about um targeting let's just say mature bucks here for a second now i know you kind of said that you really want to focus on uh diversity diverse habitats converging now let's dive into that a little bit more and talk about uh where you go from there all right let's say you got three pieces of different habitat coming together now where how are you going about selecting like stand location you mentioned earlier that you look for like a good rub line um kind of walk me through your process there so the first thing i'm gonna do is access that's a big one for me i don't want to i don't have to i don't want to go in there and chomp around and make a bunch of noise and leave my son everywhere if i can i'd like to take my canoe in there and come in from the side if there's water and paddle in with the wind blowing in my face and I literally get out of my canoe and climb my tree. I leave no scent whatsoever. I think that's the best way to do it if you can. You don't always have that opportunity, but wind, like I said, is the biggest thing. Um, and just try not to blow it in there if you can. Now, like I said, if there's, if there's a pond, walk through the, walk through that water because your scent's not going to be, that deer's not going to walk through the middle of that pond more than likely. They do sometimes, but more likely than not. They're going to walk through the middle of the woods. And then from there, if I see a rub line, obviously I just want my wind blowing into the pond. I just Anywhere where I know the deer is not going to go, that's where I want my wind to be. And I try not to push too deep in there because a lot of times those deer like to bed right on the edge of that water, mm-hmm. like on that pond. And if you get too close into there, you can blow them out walking in the morning, which I've, I've done a couple of times. Yeah, I, I've noticed that too Um, in like the northern tier of Pennsylvania. You start getting into like clear cuts and stuff, uh, the choppings, and you'll find beds and basically deer just hanging on the edge of that where they can look out into the open, but then also have that thick cover behind them. Which I would assume that's got to be pretty similar to maybe like what you were saying with your oak, your oak hammocks. Is that what they're called? Yep. Yep. Well, the oak hammocks, they can get thick, but there's not a whole lot of sunlight in there. So there's not a whole lot of undergrowth because there's a real tall canopy usually. Mm-hmm. But those palmettos, it's 
I mean, it's like a super stiff, the best way to describe it is like a super stiff, looks like a palm tree almost. It's got fans on it and there's the stalks actually have little serrated edges. They call them saw palmettos. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have shorts, you walk through, it's going to tear your legs up. Or if you don't have pants, sorry, if you don't have pants on, you're wearing shorts. A lot of times, like we, a lot of us hunt out of board shorts just because it's so hot. Um, you walk through there, you'll just, you'll get tore up. So like I said, I try to avoid that, but those deer like betting in that a lot, I think because of the protection. And if anything walks through there, it's super loud, which I think they like hearing what's coming to them if they can't smell it or see it. Is that kind of a double-edged sword too, where it's like you hear a deer walking through that, you can hear them easily? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's really cool when you, my favorite part about archer season is, I mean, you know, we're all guilty of going on our phone sometime or bored, playing a game or texting someone or whatever it is. In archery season, it is so wet that a deer cannot sneak up on you usually. I mean, no matter what he does, you hear him coming a mile away. But the problem is with me, I get all excited. I get all worked up by the time he gets <laughs> him ready to fall apart. That's but cool. But it's, uh, it's nice. I can't sneak up on you. So... um Outside of basically the stuff that you described already, what also makes uh, Florida really unique and and maybe something that you would say to somebody that is considering or maybe isn't considering, but you would say like, hey, come down and give it a shot? I mean, it's the Everglades, stuff like that. There's no place in the world like it. I've seen mountains and everything else. There is no place in the entire world like the Everglades. It's it's like hunting in a rainforest. It's the most beautiful, mesmerizing, terrible place I've ever been to. It's <laughs> hot, it's buggy, there's snakes, there's critters, but it's beautiful and there's I mean there's just there's a lot of deer down here if you know where to go. And it's just it's a completely different experience. It's the same reason people go to the mountains. You know, they go to the mountains, they get mesmerized up and they want to go back just because it was so pretty and beautiful. I think that Florida, hunting Florida and the glades is just like that same effect for me. And it's, it's a challenge. If you like a challenge, it's a good place to come and hunt because it's different, you know, just because, uh, you know, everywhere else is kind of the same in my eyes. You know, you got hardwoods, you got bottoms, you got CRP fields. I mean, you can kind of figure it out. You go to the Midwest for the most part and, there's cornfields and then there's woods backed up the cornfield. Well, when they cut the corn, where do the deer go? You know, it's, I don't want to say it's easy because it is still difficult, but mm-hmm. it's like hunting big woods. It makes a big difference and makes a big challenge compared to hunting on agricultural land. And there's bears and panthers and snakes and it's, it's, it's a cool place. It's like Jurassic Park. It really is, man. It really is. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. When, dude, when I heard, when you told me about your bear population down there, like, I had always heard that Florida had, like, a decent bear population, but I had no idea. Like, it was that ridiculous. Yeah, they, uh, they had that hunt for one hunt, and they had a set number. And they obviously, you know, broke it down into different regions that had bears. And no baiting allowed, which I know I've talked to all your Pennsylvania buddies and all <laughs> that, and they all bear hunt. And they say how hard it is to kill a bear in Pennsylvania. No bait allowed. They filled that quota within half a day and went over it with no bait, nothing. That's mind-blowing. And they shut it down because there was obviously opposition to it, and they shut it down. And I actually, my buddy went down to another mansion area and set up cameras 
and when he set up those cameras, he went back, checked them. All of his cameras were destroyed by bears literally an hour, two hours after he put them up. That's so the frustrating. Cameras. Oh yeah. I, you know, he's, we don't really have bears in our part, but when we go down like way, way down south or way north, we have them. This is kind of like a weird pocket where they're not at. But, you know, we got back, oh, someone messed with the cameras and you check the chip and you see that dreaded nose coming up, sniffing the camera. And the mm-hmm. next thing you know, the camera's, you know, on its side or broke. And you're like, oh man, well, I guess there's bears in here. So do, as far as that goes, um, like here, we have a bear population, obviously, but they kind of inger, intermingle. If you have bears down there, do they really keep the deer out because deer are preyed on by everything pretty much down there? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure the bear obviously do get a hold of them if they can. It's an easy meal. Um, but I think for the most part, there's like a lot of palmetto berries. I think they're just going to be lazy like any other animal. Gotcha. Where they're going to pick the lowest hanging fruit, palmetto yep. berries, and like that acorns. Feeders, you can't hang feeders. You hang a feeder up in private property. No matter what you do, a bear will find a way to get in the feeder. They're the smartest creatures out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. So that kind of, that brings up a question here. Uh, so baiting, what what's kind of the regs down there for baiting? Is it like private land only, no public, or is it good across the board? Yeah, it's private land only. You're not allowed to bait on public land. It's a big no-no if you get caught. Um, you have to have, I think the bait has to be out for 24 hours. It has to be a feeder. It has to be like continuous feed. You can't just go out there and throw corn. Um, turkeys. Obviously, that's a big no-no. You can't throw, you can't shoot turkeys under bait. That's feeders, anything, doesn't matter. You're not allowed to be, I think it's 200 yards or 300 yards. I don't remember exactly. I don't hunt private land a lot, so I don't know all those rules, but I know it's 200 or 300 yards from an active feeder. So you can hunt the turkey that's going to the feed, but you just can't sit within that range. Of you the just feed. can't you shoot can't over the feeder. Side. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Now, how does that influence? Um, because basically, from what I'm understanding, your public lands are pretty big. So you might not really have to contend with a whole lot of baiting issues on private, correct? Um, I mean, well, a lot of the public land around here that's owned, it's, it's all private. I mean, it's all public. There's no, there's no private land around it. If there is private land, it's owned by a government agency or the water management district. And that's literally just to hold water just so they can filter it out or make sure it doesn't go somewhere else and flood it. So it's all owned. A lot of the land is owned by the South Florida Water Management District and the St. John's Water Management District. They own a lot more than we're allowed to hunt, but they let us hunt a few parcels here and there, and it's strictly for flood control, and that is it. Gotcha. So you don't have a lot of issues with hunting on the edges of leases or anything like that, at least around here. Gotcha. That makes sense, and that's that's really nice because I know, like, where where I'm from in like South Central PA, uh, there are big blocks of public land, but a lot of it more so is small parcels uh, mixed in with private land here and there. And pen, baiting's not legal in PA, but you still have to contend with ag, food plots, that kind of stuff. And I was sure. just curious. That makes that makes. Uh, I would think it's got to be nice not having to deal with that down there. Oh yeah, it's it's great. I mean, 
even what, even though the thing is people think just because you have a feeder, you're going to kill a big buck on it. That's not always the case either because, you know, if there's a good acorn crop, those deer don't want anything to do with that corn. It's, right. it's funny. They will eat it, but if there's acorns dropping, no, they'd rather eat the acorns and mess with whatever corn or whatever feed soybeans you got in there or anything like that. Right. Right. Exactly. All right, Kyle. Um, is there kind of any other uh, things that you wanted to talk about before we hop off here? Yeah, if you come on down, it's uh, just be prepared. Bring microfiber shirts. Bring lots of water. That's a good point, actually. You know what? Before we hop off here, because this is something that we haven't gone through, give us uh, kind of a gear list. I'd, I want to I wanna hear what you would recommend for an out-of-stater for a Florida gear list. Like I said, I mean, each region's different, but for my region, I like having a backpack with a lot of water. That's super important. Um, if you're going to walk over two or three miles, bring a gallon of water because it's going to be hot. It's going to be real, real hot. And you don't think you're going to drink it, but I promise you, you're going to drink way more than you think you are. Um, I don't wear boots. I either go barefoot a lot of times or... I will wear a type of water shoe if you're not comfortable with it. Any type of draining water shoe. I like the extra tough. I think it's a Riptides. Just because you're walking through a lot of water that's waste knee deep, shin deep, stuff like that. And as I said earlier, I like to walk through the ponds instead of walking through the woods and making all that noise and making all that scent. And rubber boots or anything like that are just going to fill up with water so fast. They're going to fatigue you very, very quickly because they get heavy. So... You don't want to have boots or anything like that. And those rubber boots get really, really hot, especially in the sun. So I just wear water shoes and I wear board shorts. And, um, like I, I have a bug tamer set where it's kind of like a mesh pant that goes over. I wear it over my board shorts and I wear a short sleeve microfiber, microfiber shirt. And I throw the bug tamer top on top of that and then run a thermosel. It will save you. If you don't have a thermosel, it will be a miserable, miserable, miserable set. <laughs> and uh shoot a i shoot a fix i shoot a big uh, mechanical blade broadhead shoot the biggest hole you can get well i see a lot of people you know following that ranch ferry um you know kind of path where they want to shoot a real heavy arrow for pass-throughs and shoot a fixed blade where it doesn't have as big as a cut as a big mechanical but a lot of these deer around here are so small that you don't really have to worry too much about penetration or anything like that if you shoot a 150 pound buck that's a big buck so my opinion is leave the fixed blades home shoot a lighter arrow you're not going to need that punch as much as you would if you're hunting a deer in the north in the northeast or the midwest or anything like that and with the water being so dominant around here it's nice to have as much blood as you can because when they run through that water it washes a lot of the blood off that they shoot that they you know squirt out and it's hard to find a track, even if they're bleeding a little bit. It's not like shooting a deer in the snow or anything like that. So you want a big, big broadhead that still is enough to pass through, but leave a really, really large blood trail, in my opinion. What kind of broadheads do you like? Um, I used to shoot Rages. I've been shooting the uh, Grim Reaper Whitetail Special. It's a three-blade. It's pretty nasty. Um, I like the three-blade more than two-blade, just because I think it's harder to seal up three-blade hole than it is a two-blade mm-hmm. but i love that um i shoot the 
think they're gamer, gamer rip arrows. They're not heavy, but they're not light. They're kind of like an in-between. And I get pastures on most of the deer I shoot, even in the shoulder, and then it'll poke out on the other side. And it, it helps a lot, a lot, a lot to have a really big cutting diameter broadhead. And the deer run, so we lost deer in ponds before where we found them. You know, a couple of days later, a week later, where there's a gator eating them, and the deer ran to the pond and died in the pond. And you can't see him because he's underwater, and you literally have to walk up on him and kick him underwater to find him. So it's really important to have a really big cutting diameter broadhead that still has enough penetration to get to where you need it to go. Yeah, that's that's a really really good tip and something I definitely would have uh, probably overthought or never would have thought about. Uh, and then kind of like what you were saying with like the whole ranch ferry thing, having that flatter trajectory because of the thickness of the ecosystem down there is probably very important as well. Yeah. And the deer is smaller too. So, you know, I shot, I started out cause I was like that at first and I was shooting those big Eastern axis, those real heavy full metal jacket arrows. Mm-hmm. And those are made for elk and stuff like that. Five yards makes a big difference, especially when you're shooting at a deer that weighs a hundred, 120 pounds. You don't really have a whole lot of margin of error there. You've got to hit it within a pretty small spot there's a really good chance you're not going to find that deer. So you want something that's flat where, you know, if you have to make a shot where you don't have time to range them, you can just shoot and you can be off five yards and it's not that big of a difference. Yeah, that's really, really good advice, Kyle. I never would have thought of that. Uh, yeah, that, that helps a lot for sure. Well, buddy, um, Anything else? Mm, nothing I can think of. Okay. Um, no, that's, that's pretty much about it. Come on down, enjoy it, and uh, have fun. Bring a fishing rod. A lot of those ponds that you're uh, walking around also have big bass in them, too, if you like to fish. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, so if any of the listeners have questions, do you want to drop your uh, your social in there so that they can ask you some questions? Uh, sure. My Instagram is Kyle Sheffer. It's K-Y-L-E-S-H-E-F-F-E-R. Uh, feel free to shoot me a message or anything like that, a DM or anything. And if I can help you out, point you in the right direction, I'd be glad to help you. Gator hunts too. We do that. If you got any questions about that, I'd be glad to help you. Anyone with that too. All right. I'll make sure that I have uh, a link for Kyle's IG in the show notes. Uh, Kyle, I really appreciate you hopping on. Uh, it's been a long time coming here. I got to get down to see you and do some fishing, buddy. Yeah, come on down. You're always welcome. I appreciate that. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening into the Whitetail Theories podcast, Deer Camp Tour Edition.